Chapter 22 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3 by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 22, Lincoln's Cabinet. The work of framing the new cabinet was mainly performed on the evening of the presidential election. After the polls were closed on the 6th of November, so Mr. Lincoln related a year or two later, the superintendent of the telegraph at Springfield invited him to his office to remain and read the dispatches as they should come in. He accepted the offer and reporting himself in due time at the telegraph office from which all other visitors were excluded at nine o'clock awaited the result of the eventful day. Soon the telegrams came thick and fast, first from the neighboring precincts and counties, then from the great western cities, Chicago, St. Louis, Cincinnati, and finally from the capitals of the doubtful states, Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and the Empire State of New York. Here in this little room, in the company of two or three silent operators moving about, their mysteriously clicking instruments and recording with imperturbable gravity the swift throbbing messages from near and far, Mr. Lincoln read the reports as they came, first in fragmentary driblets and later in the rising and swelling stream of cheering news. There was never a closer calculator of political probabilities than himself. He was completely at home among election figures. All his political life he had scanned tables of returns with as much care and accuracy as he analyzed and scrutinized maxims of government and platforms of parties. Now, as formerly, he was familiar with all the turning points in contested counties and close districts, and knew by heart the value of each and every local loss or gain, and its relation to the grand result. In past years, at the close of many a hot campaign, he had searched out the comfort of victory from a discouraging and adverse-looking column of figures, or correctly read the fatal omen of defeat in some single announcement from a precinct or county. Silently, as they were transcribed, the operators handed him the messages which he laid on his knee while he adjusted his spectacles, and then read and re-read several times with deliberation. He had not long to wait for indications. From a scattering beginning made up of encouraging local fragments, the hopeful news rose to almost uninterrupted tidings of victory. Soon a shower of congratulatory telegrams fell from the wires, and while his partisans and friends in all parts of the country were thus shaking hands with him by lightning over the result, he could hear the shouts and speeches of his Springfield followers gathered in the great hall of the State House across the street. Of course, his first emotions were those of a kindling pleasure and pride at the completeness of his success, but this was only a momentary glow. He was indeed president-elect, but with that consciousness there fell upon him 
the appalling shadow of his mighty task and responsibility it seemed as if he suddenly bore the whole world upon his shoulders and could not shake it off and sitting there in the yet early watches of the night he read the still coming telegrams in a sort of absent-minded mechanical routine while his inner man took up the crushing burden of his country's troubles and traced out the laborious path of future duties when i finally bade my friends good-night and left that room said lincoln i had substantially completed the framework of my cabinet as it now exists though the grouping and combining of the new president's intended counsellors occurred at this time it is no less true that some of them were selected at a much earlier date for a month after the election he gave no intimation whatever of his purpose cabinet-making is at all times difficult as mr lincoln felt and acknowledged even though he had progressed thus far in his task up to the early days of december he followed the current of newspaper criticism daily read his budget of private letters gave numerous interviews to visiting politicians of prominence and influence and on the occasion of a short visit to chicago met and conferred with mr hamlin the vice-president-elect all constituting most probably little else than a continued study of the cabinet question never arbitrary or dictatorial in the decision of any matter he took unusual care on this point to receive patiently and consider seriously all the advice recommendations and objections which his friends from different states had to offer his personal experience during his service as a member of congress had given him an insight into the sharp and bitter contentions which grow out of office-seeking and the distribution of patronage it was therefore doubtless with the view to fortify himself in his selections that he now determined to make definite offers of some at least of the cabinet appointments the question of taking part of his constitutional advisers from among his political opponents and from the hostile or complaining southern states had been thoroughly debated in his own mind the conclusion arrived at is plainly evinced by the following written by him and inserted as a short leading editorial in the springfield journal on the morning of december twelve or thirteen eighteen sixty we hear such frequent allusions to a supposed purpose on the part of mr lincoln to call into his cabinet two or three southern gentlemen from the parties opposed to him politically that we are prompted to ask a few questions first is it known that any such gentleman of character would accept a place in the cabinet second if yea on what terms does he surrender to mr lincoln or mr lincoln to him on the political differences between them or do they enter upon the administration in open opposition to each other the high authorship of these paragraphs was not announced but the reductio ad absurdum was so complete that the newspapers were not amiss in guessing whence they emanated the selection of enemies being out of the question mr lincoln chose his ablest friends on the morning of december eighth eighteen sixty he penned the following letters springfield illinois december eighth eighteen sixty my dear sir 
With your permission, I shall at the proper time nominate you to the Senate for confirmation as Secretary of State for the United States. Please let me hear from you at your own earliest convenience. Your friend and obedient servant, A. Lincoln. Honorable William H. Seward, Washington, D.C. Private and Confidential, Springfield, Illinois, December 8, 1860. My dear sir, in addition to the accompanying and more formal note inviting you to take charge of the State Department, I deem it proper to address you this. Rumors have got into the newspapers to the effect that the department named above would be tendered you as a compliment and with the expectation that you would decline it. I beg you to be assured that I have said nothing to justify these rumors. On the contrary, it has been my purpose from the day of the nomination at Chicago to assign you by your leave this place in the administration. I have delayed so long to communicate that purpose in deference to what appeared to me a proper caution in the case. Nothing has been developed to change my view in the premises, and I now offer you the place in the hope that you will accept it, and with the belief that your position in the public eye, your integrity, ability, learning, and great experience all combine to render it an appointment preeminently fit to be made. One word more, in regard to the patronage sought with so much eagerness and jealousy, I have prescribed for myself the maxim, justice to all, and I earnestly beseech your cooperation in keeping the maxim good, your friend and obedient servant, A. Lincoln, Honorable William H. Seward, Washington, D.C., this letter, so full of frankness and delicate courtesy, together with the brief note preceding it, was sent to two intimate friends of the President-elect at Washington with the request, if their judgment concurred in the step, to hand them to Mr. Seward. They were at once delivered, and the recipient wrote the following equally courteous and characteristic answer. Washington, December 13, 1860. My dear sir, I have had the honor of receiving as well your note, which tenders to me a nomination to the Senate for the office of Secretary of State, as also your private and confidential letter on the same subject. It would be a violation of my own feelings as well as a great injustice to you if I were to leave occasion for any doubt on your part that I appreciate as highly as I ought the distinction which, as the Chief Magistrate of the Republic, you propose to confer upon me, and that I am fully, perfectly, and entirely satisfied with the sincerity and kindness of your sentiments and wishes in regard to my acceptance of it. You will readily believe that, coming to the consideration of so grave a subject all at once, I need a little time to consider whether I possess the qualifications and temper of a minister, and whether it is in such a capacity that my friends would wish that I should act if I am to continue at all in the public service. These questions are, moreover, to be considered in view of a very anomalous condition of public affairs. I wish indeed that a conference with you upon them were possible." 
but I do not see how it could prudently be held under existing circumstances. Without publishing the fact of your invitation, I will, with your leave, reflect upon it a few days, and then give you my definite answer, which, if I know myself, will be made under the influence exclusively of the most earnest desire for the success of your administration, and through it for the safety, honor, and welfare of the Union." Whatever may be my conclusion, you may rest assured of my hearty concurrence in your views in regard to the distribution of the public offices as you have communicated them. Believe me, my dear sir, most respectfully and most faithfully your friend and humble servant, William H. Seward, the Honorable Abraham Lincoln, President-elect of the United States. Before the end of the month, Mr. Lincoln received a short and simple note from Mr. Seward signifying his acceptance. Meanwhile, he had sent, December 13, a verbal message to Edward Bates of St. Louis, Missouri, that he would go there the next day to see and consult him about some points connected with the formation of his cabinet. I thought I saw an unfitness in his coming to me, and that I ought to go to him, writes Mr. Bates with his old-school politeness. Accordingly, the following Saturday, December 15, found him at Mr. Lincoln's office in Springfield. They had had a personal acquaintance of some eight years, and after a cordial greetings, the president-elect proceeded without further prelude to tell him that since the day of the Chicago nomination, it had been his purpose to tender him one of the places in his cabinet. Some of his friends had asked the State Department for him. He could not now offer him this, which was usually considered the first place in the cabinet, for the reason that he should offer that place to Mr. Seward, in view of his ability, his integrity, his commanding influence, and his fitness for the place. He did this as a matter of duty to the party and to Mr. Seward's many and strong friends, while at the same time it accorded perfectly with his own personal inclinations, notwithstanding some opposition on the part of sincere and warm friends. He would therefore offer Mr. Bates what he supposed would be more congenial, and for which he was certainly in every way qualified, the attorney generalship. Within a few days it was announced by authority that Mr. Bates had been tendered and had accepted a place in the new cabinet. His adhesion was looked upon as a sure indication of a moderate and constitutional policy by the incoming administration. The choice of Mr. Seward as the head of the cabinet, as well as his probable acceptance, was also soon whispered about among leading Republicans in Congress, rumored in the public press, and in time confirmed by a semi-official statement in the Albany Evening Journal, the organ of Mr. Seward's friend Thurlow Weed. This action of Mr. Lincoln gave the party at large general gratification since up to the Chicago Convention Mr. Seward had been its chief favorite. Whatever of antagonism existed between pronounced and conservative Republicans was thus happily neutralized, and the respective partisans of Mr. Seward and Mr. Bates each felt themselves bound to the new administration through the presence of a trusted leader in Mr. Lincoln's councils. To these two selections, a third had in the meantime been virtually added, 
as the individual held a less prominent position in the nation and as the choice was merely provisional it provoked no contest on december eleven three days after writing his letter to mr seward two gentlemen called upon the president-elect to present the claims of caleb b smith of indiana one of the pivotal states in the november election to a seat in the cabinet after a short talk showing that the question had already gone through the crucible of his judgment mr lincoln replied that being determined to act with caution and not embarrass himself with promises he could only say that he saw no insuperable objections to indiana's having a place or to smith being the man to this decision mr lincoln held firm though very considerable pressure came upon him in behalf of another citizen of indiana already then distinguished and destined to attain still greater eminence a letter which mr lincoln wrote explaining why he adhered to his original choice will be of interest in this connection as illustrating one of his rules of conduct which contributed so much to his popular strength namely neither to forget a friendship nor remember a grudge executive mansion march eighth eighteen sixty one honorable schuler colfax my dear sir your letter of the sixth has just been handed me by mr baker of minnesota when i said to you the other day that i wished to write you a letter i had reference of course to my not having offered you a cabinet appointment i meant to say and now do say you were most honorably and amply recommended and a tender of the appointment was not withheld in any part because of anything happening in eighteen fifty eight indeed i should have decided as i did easier than i did had that matter never existed i had partly made up my mind in favor of mr smith not conclusively of course before your name was mentioned in that connection when you were brought forward i said colfax is a young man is already in position is running a brilliant career and is sure of a bright future in any event with smith it is now or never i considered either abundantly competent and decided on the ground i have stated i now have to beg that you will not do me the injustice to suppose for a moment that i remember anything against you in malice yours very truly a lincoln the next step in cabinet-making was much more complex as a political and personal adjustment and proved for the moment too difficult of execution mr lincoln had frequently and without reserve expressed his decided preference for ex-governor salmon p chase of ohio as his secretary of the treasury not only on account of his acknowledged executive talent but above all because his spotless integrity of character would at once impart confidence in the national credit now greatly impaired by recent maladministration and liable to be lost in the convulsions of civil war there seemed too an eminent fitness in this selection he was looked upon as the most prominent and able representative of the second great constituent element of the republican party the former democrats of the northern states whose anti-slavery convictions had joined them to the new party of freedom but against this preference there rose up the local claim of the state of pennsylvania and of senator simon cameron as her most prominent citizen the manufacturing industry of that state created a local sentiment in behalf of a protective tariff stronger than all other party issues. 
protection had not indeed been a prominent question in the late election yet the republican platform proclaimed that the industrial interests should be encouraged the bulk of the new party were former tariff men mr lincoln himself had been an avowed protectionist in other political campaigns and was known not to have changed his convictions on this point stronger than all was the implied understanding in favor of protection unwritten indeed but none the less relied upon by politicians and parties now that the election was won pennsylvania claimed control of the treasury department as that branch of the government which could wield the greatest influence both upon legislation and administration for the promotion of her industrial prosperity governor chase had a wider national reputation than senator cameron but each was a leader in his own state each had received the almost unanimous complimentary vote of his own state in the chicago convention in view of these conflicting motives and interests the president-elect invited mr cameron to visit him at springfield and interviews took place between them on the thirtieth and thirty-first of december their conversations were undoubtedly intended to be frank and explicit and yet it would appear that a temporary misunderstanding grew out of them the precise nature of which has never become public history when mr cameron returned to his home he bore with him the following note springfield illinois december thirty one eighteen sixty honorable simon cameron my dear sir i think fit to notify you now that by your permission i shall at the proper time nominate you to the u s senate for the confirmation as secretary of the treasury or as secretary of war which of the two i have not yet definitely decided please answer at your earliest convenience your obedient servant a lincoln the purpose of the president-elect evidently formed with deliberation was suddenly changed but as the sequel proved for a time only if he ever explained his reason for so doing it was to witnesses who are long since dead one of the secondary causes he has himself left on record it happened that just at this juncture he received both by letter and through personal visits from pennsylvania politicians the indications of a bitter hostility to cameron from an influential and very active minority in that state headed by the newly elected governor and the chairman of the state central committee who protested in severe terms against cameron's appointment the situation required prompt action and keeping his own counsel mr lincoln wrote private springfield illinois january three eighteen sixty one honorable simon cameron my dear sir since seeing you things have developed which make it impossible for me to take you into the cabinet you will say this comes of an interview with mcclure and this is partly but not wholly true the more potent matter is wholly outside of pennsylvania and yet i am not at liberty to specify it enough that it appears to me to be sufficient and now i suggest that you write me declining the appointment in which case i do not object to its being known that it was tendered you better do this at once before things so change that you cannot honorably decline and i be compelled to openly recall the tender no person living knows or has an intimation that i write this letter yours truly a lincoln p s telegraph me instantly on receipt of this saying all right a l
It will be seen from this that Mr. Lincoln did not offer any explanation of his course, also that he had so well kept his secret, both of the tender and the recall, that since his judgment so dictated, he could reverse his own action, and the world be none the wiser. Still further does it appear from this letter that he had either enjoined or expected an equal discretion on the part of Mr. Cameron. But the latter, in haste to control the party politics of Pennsylvania and dictate who from that state should succeed him in the Senate, had shown Mr. Lincoln's first note. Mr. Cameron was therefore not only unable to telegraph all right, but was in a measure compelled also to show the recall to a few special friends. And thus the incident, though the correspondence and the actual details were carefully kept out of the newspapers, was more or less understood in confidential circles of politics. As might have been expected, Mr. Cameron's nearest personal friend came at once to Springfield, and the conferences on the subject may be sufficiently inferred from a letter and its enclosure which he carried back private and confidential springfield illinois january thirteenth eighteen sixty one honorable simon cameron my dear sir at the suggestion of mr sanderson and with hearty good will besides i herewith send you a letter dated january three the same in date as the last you received from me I thought best to give it that date, as it is in some sort to take the place of that letter. I learned both by a letter of Mr. Sweat and from Mr. Sanderson that your feelings were wounded by the terms of my letter, really of the third. I wrote that letter under great anxiety, and perhaps I was not so guarded in its terms as I should have been, but I beg you to be assured I intended no offense. My great object was to have you act quickly, if possible, before the matter should be complicated with the Pennsylvania senatorial election. Destroy the offensive letter or return it to me. I say to you now, I have not doubted that you would perform the duties of a department ably and faithfully nor have I for a moment intended to ostracize your friends. If I should make a cabinet appointment for Pennsylvania before I reach Washington, I will not do so without consulting you and giving all the weight to your views and wishes, which I consistently can. This I have always intended. Yours truly, A. Lincoln. Enclosure, Springfield, Illinois, January 3, 1861. Honorable Simon Cameron. My dear sir, when you were here about the last of December, I handed you a letter saying I should at the proper time nominate you to the Senate for a place in the cabinet. It is due to you and to truth for me to say you were here by my invitation and not upon any suggestion of your own. You have not as yet signified to me whether you would accept the appointment, and with much pain I now say to you that you will relieve me from great embarrassment by allowing me to recall the offer. This springs from an unexpected complication and not from any change of my view as to the ability or faithfulness with which you would discharge the duties of the place. I now think I will not definitely fix upon any appointment for Pennsylvania until I reach Washington. Your obedient servant, A. Lincoln. Before further describing this Cameron dilemma, we must look at another complication which was added to it. On the day he had given Mr. Cameron his written tender of a place, December 31, 
He had also telegraphed to Governor Chase, In these troublous times, I would like a conference with you. Please visit me here at once. By a curious coincidence, Mr. Chase arrived in Springfield on the day, January 3, on which Mr. Lincoln wrote the recall of the tender to Mr. Cameron. As in other instances, the President-elect waived all ceremony and called on Mr. Chase at his hotel. I have done with you, said he, what I would not perhaps have ventured to do with any other man in the country, sent for you to ask you whether you will accept the appointment of Secretary of the Treasury without, however, being exactly prepared to offer it to you. He also informed him of the selection of Mr. Seward and Mr. Bates, which he heartily approved. Nothing was, of course, said of the tender to Cameron or its recall, but the opposition to Cameron in Pennsylvania and the urging of Mr. Dayton of New Jersey instead, the apparent acquiescence of all in the choice of Mr. Chase and the threatening affairs of the nation as well as the strife among Republican factions, were fully talked over during his visit, which lasted two days. Mr. Chase stated that he was not prepared to say that he would accept that place if offered. Neither did he positively decline. He valued the trust and its opportunities, but he was reluctant to leave the Senate. It was resolved to ask the advice of friends and abide the course of events. A good deal of conversation, writes Mr. Chase, followed in reference to other possible members of the cabinet, but everything was left open when we parted. All these important visits to Springfield were heralded in the newspapers and the rumors connected therewith proportionately magnified. Particularly did the statement of Mr. Cameron's selection and its quick contradiction put both his friends and opponents on the alert. Pennsylvania politics were for the moment at a white heat, and letters showered into Springfield. Politicians are but human. Mr. Cameron was sorely wounded in pride and weakened in prestige. He felt hurt at the form as well as the substance of the recall, which, being intended to remain secret, was more explicit than conventional. While he did not conceal his chagrin, on the whole he kept his temper, taking the ground that he neither originally solicited the place nor would he now decline it. His enemies, seeing him at bay, redoubled their efforts to defeat him. They charged him with unfitness, with habitual intrigue, with the odium of corrupt practices. Mr. Lincoln, however, soon noticed that these allegations were vaguely based upon newspaper report and public rumor, and that when requested to do so, no one was willing to make specific charges and furnish tangible proof. While the opponents of Mr. Cameron hastened to transmit to Springfield protests against his appointment, his friends were yet more active in forwarding recommendations in his behalf. All through the month of January, this epistolary contest seemed the principal occupation of the Pennsylvania Republicans, and to some extent it communicated itself to other localities. Sharp as were the assaults, the defense was yet more earnest, and testimonials came from all ranks and classes. Citizens, clergymen, editors, politicians, and officials of all grades, and in numbers fully as three to one, endorsing his private and personal worth, his public services, his official uprightness. Astute Washington politicians were nonplussed and frankly confessed that his vindication from aspersion was complete and overwhelming, and that they could not account for it, attributing it, as usual, to his personal intrigue. Reasons aside, it was evident that Pennsylvania demanded Cameron, 
and in the same connection protested against chase in the treasury department insisting that the latter through his democratic teachings and party affiliations was necessarily wedded to the doctrines of free trade and hence inimical to the manufacturing prosperity of that state which was anxiously looking forward to protective legislation mr cameron was highly gratified at this manifestation from his own state as he had a right to be and was thereby able to declare himself entirely satisfied with the situation as thus left and to express his continued good will towards the president-elect pending this incident still another phase of the cabinet question had more fully developed itself at washington the proposition to appoint at least one distinctly southern man continued from time to time to be urged upon mr lincoln notably by some of the most prominent and it may be added most radical republican senators and representatives in congress to the policy of such a step the president-elect cordially assented but the real question was as he had already so sharply defined it would any southern man of character and influence accept such a place since mr seward's selection he too joined in the current suggestion i feel it my duty he wrote december twenty five to submit for your consideration the names of colonel fremont for secretary of war randall hunt of louisiana and john a gilmer or kenneth rayner of north carolina for other places should you think that any of these gentlemen would be likely to be desirable in the administration i should find no difficulty i think in ascertaining whether they would accept without making the matter public in another note of december twenty eighth he added the name of robert e scott of virginia to his list of southern candidates thereupon mr lincoln sent him authority to make the inquiry while he himself wrote directly to john a gilmer asking him to come to springfield mr seward's letters had also urged in this connection that in view of the threatened revolution mr lincoln should come to washington somewhat earlier than usual and should at once select his secretaries of war and navy that they might begin to devise measures of safety to all these suggestions mr lincoln sent the following reply private springfield illinois january three eighteen sixty one honorable w h seward my dear sir yours without signature was received last night i have been considering your suggestions as to my reaching washington somewhat earlier than is usual it seems to me the inauguration is not the most dangerous point for us our adversaries have us now clearly at disadvantage on the second wednesday of february when the votes should be officially counted if the two houses refuse to meet at all or meet without a quorum of each where shall we be i do not think that this counting is constitutionally essential to the election but how are we to proceed in absence of it in view of this i think it best for me not to attempt appearing in washington till the result of that ceremony is known it certainly would be of some advantage if you could know who are to be at the heads of the war and navy departments but until i can ascertain definitely whether i can get any suitable men from the south and who and how many i cannot well decide as yet i have no word from mr gilmer in answer to my request for an interview with him i look for something on the subject through you before long yours very truly a lincoln the result of mr seward's inquiries soon came and revealed precisely the hesitation and difficulty which the president-elect had foretold 
Mr. G. of N.C. says he will consider of the proposition, and that he trusts that before giving an answer he will be able to name a person better calculated than himself for the purpose indicated. I do not think he will find such a person. He will not reply further until required to do so by you directly or indirectly. I will communicate with him if you wish. I think he would not decline. I have tried to get an interview on my own responsibility with Mr. Scott, but he has not yet come, though he has promised to do so. I still think Randall Hunt of Louisiana would be well chosen. And again, Mr. Gilmer has written home confidentially and will give me an answer in a few days. He is inquiring about Randall Hunt. What do you know of Meredith P. Gentry of Tennessee? To this, Mr. Lincoln answered, Private, Springfield, Illinois, January 12, 1861, Honorable W. H. Seward, my dear sir, yours of the 8th received. I still hope Mr. Gilmer will, on a fair understanding with us, consent to take a place in the cabinet. The preference for him over Mr. Hunt or Mr. Gentry is that up to date he has a living position in the South, while they have not. He is only better than Winter Davis and that he is farther south. I fear if we could get, we could not safely take more than one such man, that is, not more than one who opposed us in the election, the danger being to lose the confidence of our own friends. Your selection for the State Department having become public, I am happy to find scarcely any objection to it. I shall have trouble with every other Northern Cabinet appointment, so much so that I shall have to defer them as long as possible to avoid being teased to insanity to make changes. Your obedient servant, A. Lincoln. Under date of January 15, Mr. Seward sent an additional report on the subject. I think, wrote he, Mr. Scott has been terrified into dropping the subject about which I wrote to you. He has not come to see me, so we will let him pass, if you please. I still think well and have hopes of Gilmer. But Mr. Lincoln was by that time thoroughly satisfied that this last hope would also prove idle, for he himself had a second letter from Mr. Gilmer, dated January 29, in which that gentleman declined his invitation to come to Springfield, and in which, having missed receiving Mr. Lincoln's former reply, he still pathetically insisted that the president-elect should save the country by writing a letter to satisfy the South. Mr. Seward was so much of an optimist that he clung to the idea of securing a Southern Unionist. In another letter, which he wrote to the president-elect under date of January 27, it is curious to note how he continues his search after the impossible against the accumulation of evidence which convinced his reason but could not subdue his hope. Mr. Cameron showed me the letter you had sent to him and seems entirely satisfied with it. I saw Mr. Robert E. Scott of Virginia today pursuant to appointment. He is a splendid man, and he would be a fit and creditable representative of the Southern Union Party. Whether he is not too exacting for his section to make a practical minister for you is quite doubtful in my mind. I will think more." Recent events in Virginia have opened access for me to Union men in Virginia and other southern states. Among others, Mr. James Barber of the state of Virginia has visited me. He is a Democrat, but the master spirit of the Union Party. And he left upon my mind a most favorable impression as a man of talent, spirit, loyalty, and practicability. We will talk of him when you come here. 
The appeals from the Union men in the border states for something of concession or compromise are very painful, since they say that without it their states must all go with the tide, and your administration must begin with the free states meeting all southern states in a hostile confederacy. Chance might render the separation perpetual. Disunion has been contemplated and discussed so long there that they have become frightfully familiar with it, and even such men as Mr. Scott and William C. Rives are so far disunionists as to think that they would have the right and be wise in going if we will not execute new guarantees which would be abhorrent in the North. It is almost in vain that I tell them to wait. Let us have a truce on slavery, put our issue on disunion, and seek remedies for ultimate griefs in a constitutional question. This is the dark side of the picture. Now for the brighter one, beyond a peradventure disunion, is falling and union rising in the popular mind. Our friends say we are safe in Maryland, and Mr. Scott and others tell us that union is gaining rapidly as an element in Virginia. In any case, you are to meet a hostile armed confederacy when you commence. You must reduce it by force or conciliation. The resort to force would very soon be denounced by the North, although so many are anxious for a fray. The North will not consent to a long civil war. A large portion, much the largest portion of the Republican Party, are reckless now of the crisis before us, and compromise or concession though as a means of averting dissolution is intolerable to them. They believe that either it will not come at all or be less disastrous than I think it will be. For my own part, I think that we must collect the revenues, regain the forts in the Gulf, and if need be, maintain ourselves here. But that every thought that we think ought to be conciliatory, forbearing, and paternal, and so open the way for the rising of a Union party in the seceding states, which will bring them back into the Union. It will be very important that your inaugural address be wise and winning. I am glad that you have suspended making cabinet appointments. The temper of your administration, whether generous and hopeful, of union or harsh and reckless, will probably determine the fate of our country. May God give you wisdom for the great trust and responsibility. In this attitude, matters remained until towards the end of February, when Mr. Lincoln arrived in Washington. Namely, Mr. Seward of New York and Mr. Bates of Missouri had positively accepted definite places in the cabinet. Mr. Chase of Ohio and Mr. Smith of Indiana had been virtually chosen, but were yet held under advisement. A tender had been made to Mr. Cameron of Pennsylvania and recalled, but not declined, and Southern men like Gilmer of North Carolina and Scott of Virginia had not the courage to accept. In addition to these, Mr. Lincoln had by this time practically settled in his own judgment upon Gideon Wells of Connecticut as the New England member, though no interview had been held nor tender made. But as early as the meeting, November 22, between the president and vice president-elect at Chicago, this name had been the subject of special consultation, and a friend had obtained from Mr. Wells the latter's written views upon current political questions, especially the Fugitive Slave Clause, of the Constitution. A great number of letters and formal recommendations since received had been confirmed Mr. Lincoln's first impressions as to his fitness, availability, and representative character. Washington was thronged with politicians called there by the proceedings of Congress, by the peace convention just closing, by the secession excitement, and especially by the advent of a new and yet untried party in administration. 
Willard's, then the principal hotel, was never in its history more busy nor more brilliant. Here Mr. Lincoln and his suite had spacious and accessible rooms, and here, during the six or eight working days which intervened between his arrival and the inauguration, was the great political exchange where politicians, editors, committee men, delegations, congressmen, governors, and senators congregated and besieged the doors of the coming power from morning till midnight. Mr. Lincoln had a sincere respect for great names in politics and statesmanship, the more so because his own life had in the main been provincial. Nevertheless, he quickly noted that here at the center, as well as in lesser and more distant circles, there was present harmony in the chief party tenets, but that great diversity and cross-purpose, even serious antagonism, as to men and measures in detail were likely to arise in the future, that the powerful cross-lights of the capital only intensified the factional contests, local jealousies, and the national difficulties and dangers he had already viewed more remotely but quite as accurately from Springfield, that the wisdom of trained actors in the political drama was as much beclouded by interest or prejudice as was his own by inexperience and diffidence. After a week's patient listening, he found his well-formed judgment about the composition of his cabinet unshaken. He had by this time finally determined to place Cameron in the War Department, and Chase was understood to have accepted the Treasury. Hence the East and the West, the great pivotal states, the Whig and Democratic elements of the Republican Party, each by three members, were all believed to be fairly and acceptably represented. The slave states, too, through Mr. Bates of Missouri, had a voice in the new council, but the charge of sectionalism had been so persistently iterated by the South that it was thought best to give the single remaining place to Maryland, even then balancing between loyalty and open secession, and the final controversy was whether that choice should fall upon Montgomery Blair, a Democrat and member of a historic and influential family, or upon Henry Winter Davis, a young Whig of rising fame. Something of the obstinacy and bitterness of the entire contest was infused into this last struggle over a really minor place. This was partly because so little remained to quarrel about, but mainly because it was supposed to be the casting vote of the new cabinet, which should decide the dominancy of the Whig Republicans or Democratic Republicans in Mr. Lincoln's administration. In the momentary heat and excitement, this phase of the matter expanded beyond any original design until Mr. Lincoln realized that it was no longer a merely local strife between Blair and Davis in Maryland, but the closing trial of strength and supremacy between Whigs and Democrats of the new party throughout the Union, headed, respectively, though perhaps unconsciously, by Seward and Chase. This contingency, too, had been foreseen by the president-elect, and he had long ago determined not to allow himself to be made the football between rival factions. Carrying out, therefore, his motto of justice to all, as formulated in his tender to Seward, he determined to appoint Mr. Blair. When reminded that by such selection he placed four Democrats and only three Whigs in his cabinet, he promptly replied that he was himself an old-line Whig, and he should be there to make the parties even a declaration which he repeated, sometimes jocularly, sometimes earnestly, often afterwards. Heated partisans from both factions doubtless found it difficult to persuade themselves that this inexperienced man would persist in attempting to hold an even and just balance between the two. 
but he had already made up his mind that if the quarrel became irrepressible it should be carried on outside of his administration during the two or three days which elapsed after his selections were finally determined upon and before their actual transmission to the senate for confirmation there were interminable rumors of changes and of course a corresponding rush to influence new combinations late one night a friend gained access to him and in great excitement asked is it true mr lincoln as i have just heard that we are to have a new deal after all and that you intend to nominate winter davis instead of blair judd replied he when that slate breaks again it will break at the top these plottings at last bore mischievous fruit super serviceable friends doubtless persuaded seward that the alleged ascendancy of the chase faction in the cabinet was real and ominous hence possibly the subjoined note washington march two eighteen sixty one my dear sir circumstances which have occurred since i expressed to you in december last my willingness to accept the office of secretary of state seem to me to render it my duty to ask leave to withdraw that consent tendering to you my best wishes for the success of your administration with my sincere and grateful acknowledgments of all your acts of kindness and confidence towards me i remain very respectfully and sincerely your obedient servant william h seward the honorable abraham lincoln president-elect this from the man who for several months had held intimate counsel with him had taken active part in the formation of the cabinet and had read and partly revised the inaugural was unexpected did it mean that he would withdraw and complain that he was forced out because a preponderating influence was given to his rival the note was received on saturday and mr lincoln pondered the situation till monday morning while the inauguration procession was forming in the streets he wrote the following and handed it to his private secretary to copy with the remark i can't afford to let seward take the first trick it was dated for form's sake at the executive mansion though it was written and copied at willard's executive mansion march four eighteen sixty one my dear sir your note of the second instant asking to withdraw your acceptance of my invitation to take charge of the state department was duly received it is the subject of the most painful solicitude with me and i feel constrained to beg that you will countermand the withdrawal the public interest i think demands that you should and my personal feelings are deeply enlisted in the same direction please consider an answer by nine o'clock a m to-morrow your obedient servant a lincoln hon william h seward when the inauguration pageant was ended and the usual public reception and handshaking were concluded mr seward called upon the president at the executive mansion and the two men had a long and confidential talk in which seward's answer sent the following morning was perhaps already foreshadowed my dear sir deferring to your opinions and wishes as expressed in your letter of yesterday and in our conversation of last evening i withdraw my letter to you of the second instant and remain with great respect and esteem your most obedient servant william h seward the president of the united states whereupon at twelve o'clock the senate being convened in extra session the president sent to that body the names of his proposed cabinet as follows for secretary of state william h seward of new york for secretary of the treasury salmon p chase of ohio for secretary of war simon cameron of pennsylvania 
for secretary of the navy gideon wells of connecticut for secretary of the interior caleb b smith of indiana for attorney general edward bates of missouri for postmaster general montgomery blair of maryland the senate confirmed all these nominations without delay and on the day after march sixth most of the appointees were formally inducted into office that evening occurred the first cabinet meeting for introduction and acquaintance, and the new president greeted his cabinet at the executive mansion substantially as he had planned it on the night of the November election in the little telegraph office at Springfield. Carping critics might indeed at the moment have specified defects, incongruities, jealousies, and seeds of possible discord and disaster in the new cabinet, but we can now understand that they neither comprehended the man who was to dominate and govern it, nor the storms of state, which as captain and crew he and they were to encounter and outride. He needed advisers, helpers, executive eyes and hands, not alone in department routine, but in the higher qualities. Above all, his principal motive seems to have been representative character, varied talent, in a word combination. Statesmanship implies success. Success demands cooperation, popular sympathy, and support. He wished to combine the experience of Seward, the integrity of Chase, the popularity of Cameron, to hold the West with Bates, attract New England with Wells, please the Whigs through Smith, and convince the Democrats through Blair. Mr. Lincoln possessed a quick intuition of human nature and of the strength or weakness of individual character. His whole life had been a practical study of the details and rivalries of local partisanship. He was, moreover, endowed in yet unsuspected measure with a comprehensive grasp of great causes and results in national politics he had noted and heralded the alarming portent of the slavery struggle with more precision than any contemporary he had defined the depth and breadth of the moral issues and rights it involved he had led the preliminary victory at the november polls now that secession was proclaimed in every cotton state his simple logic rose above minor considerations to the peril and the protection of the nation to the assault on and the defense of the Constitution. He saw but the ominous cloud of civil war in front and the patriotic faith and enthusiasm of the people behind him. The slogan of a Seward committee, a chaste delegation, or a Cameron clan was but the symbol and promise of a wide-awake club to vote for freedom or of an armed regiment on the battlefield to maintain it. Neither did any one yet suspect his delicate tact in management, strength of will, and firmness of purpose. In weaker hands, such a cabinet would have been a hotbed of strife. Under him, it became a tower of strength. He made these selections because he wanted a council of distinctive and diverse yet able, influential, and representative men who should be a harmonious group of constitutional advisers and executive lieutenants, not a board of regents holding the great seal and commission and intriguing for the succession. End of chapter 22